welcome to episode two of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Caitlin Perot, associate professor of forensic sciences and chemistry at Chaminade University in Honolulu. Professor Perot is an expert in multidimensional gas chromatography and co-chair of the International Multidimensional Chromatography Workshop, and I am so pleased that she is here with me today. I invited Kate mainly to talk with us about multidimensional gas chromatography and its use in forensic science for the determination of odors associated with decomposing remains, but we'll have a chance to talk about other things in the field more broadly as well. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today and for the very first Analytically Speaking podcast focused on separation science. Hi, thanks, Dwight. It's really a pleasure to be here. I appreciate um, being able to be involved in this very first episode on separation science, so thank you very much. Before we get into talking about your science, I want to get into a little more of your background, Kate. For listeners unfamiliar with your CV, let me touch on that a bit. You did your undergraduate work in forensic science at Ontario Technical University from 2007 to 2011, and then moved to Australia to do your graduate work, continuing with the theme of forensic science at the University of Technology, Sydney, where your dissertation title was Novel Odor Analysis of Soils Associated with Decomposing Remains, under the direction of Dr. Sherry Forbes. After the PhD, you did a postdoc at the University of Liège in Belgium, working with Professor Foucault. In 2017, you started the academic position you hold now as an assistant professor of forensic sciences and chemistry at Chaminade University of Honolulu, and you were promoted to associate professor in the fall of 2021. So congratulations on recently receiving tenure, Kate. I also want to highlight a couple of awards you've received recently, which are well known in the separation science field, and especially in the multidimensional separations area. In 2019, you received the Young Investigator Award in Separation Science, which is organized by the ACS Subdivision of Chromatography and Separations Chemistry. And just last year, you received the John B. Phillips Award, which is named after one of the pioneers in multidimensional gas chromatography separations for your innovative work in GCGC. Did I miss anything that you want to add there, Kate? No, that's great. Very accurate. Thank you. All right, great. So during the pandemic, I listened to many science podcasts, and I've always really been intrigued in listening listening to those to hear about early career-defining events uh, for different people. So let's talk about that a little bit. What what events would you point to in in your own career that, or, or life, I guess, that increased your interest in science? Yeah, honestly, I think um, thinking back to it really as a kid, I didn't have as much exposure to science events as maybe kids these days now do. Um, One thing I do remember being in grade school was a program that we had called Scientists in the School. Um, This is where someone would come in and they do hands on activities with us in the classroom. And those were some of my earliest memories of being interested in science really because of an event. Um, As I grew up and eventually ended up in university, a lot of the events that caught my eye were outreach related. So I loved being able to show and teach kids about the science that I was using on a daily basis in my classes. So I think a lot of that kind of shaped and formed um, my interest in science. 
that's something I still do pretty frequently now. I work a lot with organizations, for example, uh, the Girl Scouts of Hawaii here in Honolulu. Uh, but also in graduate school and still now, I think conferences were really a source of motivation, inspiration, and networking for me. There's really nothing quite like going to a conference and coming back with a notebook full of ideas and questions. Because of the pandemic, that's something I miss a lot these days, but I'm really hoping that in the next year, I'll be um, back to doing that a lot more often. That sounds great. So when did you become really interested in separation science specifically? Um, I know for me, actually, as an undergraduate, I had very little exposure to separation science and really getting in the field was was kind of a late uh, late transition in the game for me. So um, when did that happen for you and, and what factors do you attribute to this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in university, I was really fascinated with learning how to use these large and at the time what felt like very um, intimidating instruments uh, in my classes. And, you know, learning to use those instruments in a way where I could find out what was actually in something. Um, I think if you ask a lot of separation scientists specifically what interests them about their field, you'll find a theme where we really need to know what is in stuff. Um, I specifically got interested in the field of comprehensive two-dimensional GC or GCGC, which I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about later. Um, but I got interested in that because of a free conference that I attended in Toronto back in 2011. Uh, a fellow grad student of mine was attending and said, hey, don't, why don't you come with me? Why don't you join me? I went and I was totally captivated by the technique and the science being presented at the conference. The speakers were some of the most exciting speakers I'd ever seen uh, talking about their science. There was really a passion there that still sticks with me. Um, 11 years later, now I'm co-chair of that very conference that I first attended. And it still amazes me how some of those small moments along the way that you don't necessarily think are gonna impact your career direction um, now really kind of grew into what is my career and, and a great passion for separation science. I really agree with your point about um, sort of the driving force for a lot of BP, a lot of people being the curiosity about uh, finding out what's in something. It seems really simple on the surface, but I think uh, a lot of separation scientists are just really curious about that kind of thing, and and that's what really keeps us moving along. Yeah. Great. So so you're an expert in in two two dimensional gas chromatography, as you said, known as GCGC. So let's just take a few minutes to, um, for you to explain to our listeners what GCG is, GC is and uh, what kinds of analytical problems it's, it's well suited for. Yeah, that's a, a great topic and something that I really enjoy speaking on. So you have to watch out a little bit because um, I know we don't have unlimited time. So I'll try to keep my remarks kind of brief on this topic. Um, so to understand GCGC, one of the things I always say is you really have to first understand what one-dimensional gas chromatography is. Um, and this is something that's taught in undergraduate classes, right? Um, while it sounds like something that's kind of out of a, a CSI TV show or, um, you know, something um, that maybe may, might sound more elusive, gas chromatography really, when, it, when we boil it down to what it is um, fundamentally, it's about separating components of a mixture. So we basically put a complex gaseous mixture of compounds into a really long, skinny capillary tube. And as our components go through that tube, they move at different rates. This causes them to separate from one another. And once they're separate from one another, we have a much easier time at identifying what each of them is. And if we want to, we can look at how much of each of, that, of those compounds is there. Um, and that's how we figure out you know, what is in something. And this is something that drives us, I think, as separation scientists. 
Now, GC is a great technique, but and it's oftentimes referred to as a gold standard in a lot of fields. Where it can fall short is when the number of compounds that we try to separate becomes simply too large. Complex mixtures often have hundreds or even sometimes thousands of components. We simply cannot separate them all in a, our single column, at, at least not within reasonable run parameters um, or settings that we can use on our system. So instead, what we do using GCGC is we attach a second column and perform a secondary independent mechanism of separation on small sections that we collect from our first column. Well, it might sound kind of complicated if this isn't something that you do on a regular basis. The take home here is that we're able to drastically improve our ability to resolve components from one another, thus making it more easy to identify and quantify them. So if the purpose of one dimensional gas chromatography is just to separate components of a mixture, the purpose of GCGC is to separate components of the most complex mixtures out there. And it's used widely in a number of fields. My group works on uh, several forensic and biomedical problems, but there are many other fields relying on GCGC these days. Just to name a few examples, things like food authentication, wildlife detection, toxicology, environmental monitoring, explosive detection, petroleumics, metabolomics, and even more recently, COVID detection. All right, great. So that's... Uh... Probably one of the best, uh, most concise uh, explanations of multidimensional chromatography I've heard. Uh, so thanks, thanks for that. So then moving on to uh, moving more specifically to sort of the core of your, your interest, which you just mentioned a little bit, um, focusing on the use of multidimensional GC to uh, look at composition of odors. Let's get into that in a little more detail. So what can you say about why this particular research problem is important and, and how in the world did you get into this area in the first place? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not exactly one people think and talk about every day. Yeah, certainly. It definitely wasn't an area that, you know, as a, a young scientist, I dreamed of getting into, but it was definitely one that I found a lot of passion in once I, once I got started. Um, what we do is study the odors that are given off by decomposing remains. I actually started doing research in this area um, in the, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, but also during graduate school. Um, originally, I, I started doing a degree in forensic sciences. You know, there's a lot of chemistry and a lot of biology in that degree, but I, in the beginning, I wasn't specifically into chemistry. Through my degree, I started doing research with Dr. Shari Forbes, who you mentioned earlier. She's really a leader in forensic taphonomy. And forensic taphonomy is really just the field that helps us better understand what is happening with decomposing remains. So after death, what happens to a body? Um, I started to understand doing research in this area, how biochemistry, organic chemistry, and analytical chemistry that I was learning in my undergraduate classes could help me answer some of these really complicated research questions. And I was totally thrilled with the thought of that. So, you know, some people might look at decomposing remains and and have certain thoughts or emotions. Whereas I was looking at it thinking, wow, this chemistry is really cool. It's really interesting. Um, and so that made me quite passionate. I then started graduate school. And during the early days of my master's and PhD, I really quickly realized that a lot of the challenges that were ahead of us and better understanding these odors um, were, were quite analytically challenging. You know, they, they weren't easy questions to answer and we really needed some complex techniques to be able to handle those samples. Um, this was also right around the time of the Casey Anthony trial. 
some people might be familiar with this. This was the death of a daughter, Kaylee Anthony, in 2008, leading to a trial in 2011 where uh, her mother, Casey Anthony, was eventually found not guilty. I watched a lot of the testimony in this trial with my fellow grad students kind of as I was doing my research, and I was totally captivated by the idea that they tried to use decomposition odor as evidence um, to prove or demonstrate how a body might have been transported in that case. A lot of the scientific foundation that we have for this in the field now is a lot stronger than it was 10 years ago when that trial was ongoing. And frankly, back then, it probably wasn't quite ready to go to court. Um, since then, I've worked a lot during graduate school, my postdoc, and now as a faculty member to improve the methods that we use. So the, the separation science behind understanding uh, how to characterize decomposition odor. Really, again, to find out, you know, what's in this? What, what is this odor? Okay. And so <clears throat> since, uh, since that case, has there, has there been much progression in the use of this kind of evidence uh, in court since then? Or is it really still kind of developing after that first instance? Yeah, it's definitely really still developing. Um, you know, there, there are other circumstances where gas chromatography um, is used to look at compounds that are odorous. So uh, ignitable liquid residue or arson analysis is probably one of the more um, known examples in the forensic field. And I, I think there's definitely a lot of fields within forensic science that may be interested in starting to implement some of these multidimensional approaches now that we know, you know what benefits that they can provide. Um, in terms of decomposition odor, there are a few examples where you know, these have been used as evidence, but um, that, that Casey Anthony trial is just one, one example where it was used. Uh, we actually did some research on a case study um, a few years back as well that we published too. So it, it's starting to be something of interest. Really one of the things that people are very interested in is can we chemically analyze odors to better understand postmortem interval estimation or PMI? And for us, that's really important in the field of forensic science because knowing when somebody died is usually a very important piece of information in an investigation. So using chemical markers to be able to estimate that time frame um, is really desirable. And we don't have a lot of great methods for doing that at the moment. So this is just one proposed way of, of maybe doing that in the future. Okay, great, thanks. So uh, why is, you spoke earlier a little bit about the sort of the places where GCGC um, is a good alternative to conventional one-dimensional separation, but why is why would you say is, uh, GCGC is particularly useful in in this particular context? Yeah, so decomposition odor is very very complicated. Um, I wouldn't say it's the absolute most complex matrix you'll ever see out there. You know, it, it's not quite as complicated as something like diesel, for example, but it, it's still pretty complicated. Um, it's a mixture of hundreds of chemical compounds, right? Uh, these compounds exist in a broad dynamic range, meaning that some of them are really saturating in concentration and others are very trace in concentration. And analytically, that's very hard to, um, you know, quantify, analyze at those two different levels. They also exist, the, the compounds we look at exist over at least 10 compound classes. And we know that as analytical chemists, trying to target a method that accurately identifies and quantifies compounds across a lot of compound classes is really hard. If, we, if we're targeting a certain class, it makes our, our life a lot easier. So this is a serious analytical challenge, and that's why we use GCGC to tackle it. 
if we want to effectively separate hundreds of compounds that are present in this odor, we need to physically separate them from one another. So make them separate in chromatographic space. Um, so sometimes, you know, if you had two or three overlapping compounds uh, in a mixture, you know, when they're coming to your detector, we have other techniques that we can use, like, for example, using mass spectrometry um, and potentially deconvolution to figure out which compounds are which, which mass fragments are coming from which compounds. And we can use these algorithms basically to uh, deconvolute or separate those things from one another. But in our case, we really do need that physical separation of compounds. We can't kind of post hoc go back and separate those things from one another because it's not uncommon for us to have four or five, maybe six compounds that are colluding all at the same time. And we just don't have methods that, you know, can, we don't have computing algorithms that can figure that out, right? Um, so GCGC really gives us the separation power to separate these compounds uh, because we're physically getting them in separate space. And we're much more successful at monitoring compounds when we do that, because if we are looking to see small, subtle changes in very complicated profiles, we can't necessarily do that with traditional 1DGC. We need to have the ability to really look at that fidelity between compounds. So for me, it's a brilliant technique at producing the results that we need. We have high separation power, good sensitivity, less interference from background, and many more other things that provide us with benefits. Uh, one of the big problems my group's been working on is looking at which volatiles are contributed by specific bacterial species. This is a, still a very, very big blind spot in our area of research to understand which compounds come from which microbial species and how that will change over that species life cycle. So we have access to a postmortem microbial collection through one of my collaborators, Dr. David Carter at Chaminade University. Um, and we've been profiling which compounds come from these different species. So because this is still so unknown in this field, each new data set that we get is really valuable and highly informative. Great. Uh, so one, one question that comes to my mind as you're describing this is, um, sort of thinking about the development of the field of, of multidimensional GC. So you described the importance of the physical separation, which I really appreciate that. I, when I'm talking with students about it, that's, that's how I describe it too. And then you talked about uh, the role of the detector, possibly adding some additional separating capability there. And then also the role of the computer or, or let's say mathematics, chemometrics to, to further separate using um, you know, math and, and statistics. So what is your opinion about sort of where the field stands today? Like, um, can, can we, do you imagine significant progress in all three of those veins? Or are we sort of at a point where, you know, we, we've gotten 90% of what we can get out of the chromatography and now we really need to focus on sort of the data analysis, the chemometrics uh, and the detection piece. What's your opinion about that? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So what, when I teach about chromatography, I oftentimes talk about the difference between chromatographic resolution, so separation in space, versus analytical resolution. So the, the ability to do other things with your data to, to separate things from one another. And I think for a really long time, um, there was a focus in separation science on just analytical resolution, having the ability to separate things in some way, shape, or form. But I think what multidimensional chromatography really started to place an emphasis on is the high quality chromatographic resolution. 
And so I think stepping back and having that chromatographic resolution provides us with so much extra power. We were able to see so much that we couldn't see before, right? That we might not have even known what was in our sample because maybe it was being masked by some higher level compound. So now that we've kind of dialed back and, and looked at this chromatographic problem that we have for complex samples, I think now we start to flip back actually to that concept of analytical resolution and being able to use computing tools, statistics, et cetera, um, you know, to, to even further what we have chromatographically. I do think that in the last 10 or so years, you know, the, the developments for at least for GCGC, for multidimensional chromatography, have been significant. We've seen a lot of, of development in terms of hardware, in terms of software. Um, I think we do have, you know, a, a, a great number of tools at our disposal now that are all very high quality. And, and, you know, there are certain pros and cons about different systems, but commercially, we have a ton of tools available to us. So I do think that now, you know, our focus does shift to how do we get the most out of that complex data? We have these huge data sets with a ton of information we couldn't see before. Our problem now becomes how do we handle those? And I think that's really where the focus of the future is gonna be is how, how do we handle those complex data sets? Okay, great, thanks. So um, shifting gears just a little bit, I know that you've worked with uh, local public safety officials to bring some of the science that you've just described to us to them because it's obviously relevant to them. Can you just talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the questions I often get asked is what's the point in studying decomposition odor? And there's, there's obviously a lot of different applications of this type of work. Um, one of them is to better understand how we can help with search and rescue, search and recovery, mass disaster scenarios, missing persons scenarios, et cetera. Um, so one of the things that's been really fulfilling for me is getting involved in the search and rescue community here in Hawaii. Uh, missing person searches are actually quite common out here. We actually have two ongoing at the moment um, in Hawaii, you know, while we're recording this podcast. Um, due to the, you know, the tough terrain we have out here, the really extensive hiking trail system, um, you know, vast changes in elevation, things like that. Um, there's just a lot of these scenarios. So I've assisted with, um, you know, information uh, in how decomposition odor is produced, how it moves in different environments, how to differentiate from like mammals versus human decomposition, et cetera. Um, and I give seminars and workshops to search and rescue organizations about body discovery and odors. Um, so this is something that in the beginning, I didn't really anticipate uh, developing in the early days of our research, never really thought that this would be part of the picture. But I'm so grateful that I can give back by sharing this information with our local community. You know, ultimately, some of these scenarios end up with discovering a person that's no longer a happy, healthy, living individual. And it's my hope that by working with these agencies to better understand what happens to a body after death, we can help prepare their, you know, their volunteers for what they may encounter out there on a search. Uh, being better prepared also helps to, to, to prevent people from um, stopping to volunteer for those major efforts in the event that there's some kind of undesirable outcome that might cause them some kind of emotional trauma. So I think what we're doing to help prepare volunteers for discovering a body can really make an impact. And I'm always really thrilled to see how the chemistry that we do can help serve our society for the better. Great. So yeah, that's, that's really, um, really great to hear about how you're able to translate uh, that research to 
to impact the the community at large. Uh, some folks can do that, but not everyone uh, are able to. So it's great to to hear about your work uh, in that area. Yeah, so uh, now I'd like to shift gears a little bit. So one of the, I, I think in these podcasts, at least initially here, uh, the two main things we're trying to do in terms of um, the discussion is one, talk about uh, our guest research area in some detail, which we've just done, but also I think get your perspective on what's going on in the literature, because I think this is one of the things that's really interesting to our our listeners who have limited time and and can't be you know have their nose in the literature all the time so it's really valuable to have your um, uh, perspective and and opinion about some of the things that are, are going on that might be interesting to folks so let's um just talk a little bit about that uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the recent papers that you have found particularly interesting or or impactful yeah, sure. Um, so in the field of VOC analysis, which is mostly, um, you know, the, the field that I exist in, so volatile organic compounds, um, you might think of that, you know, if this isn't something you normally do, you might think of that kind of as odor chemistry or aroma chemistry. Um, I'm seeing a lot of GCGC emerge into new areas. So 10 years ago, you know, most of the papers that we saw in the field of GCGC were really focused on method development, technique development, focus on instrumentation with a purpose maybe of demonstrating the utility of GCGC, right? And, and I think we've come far past that now. And looking more closely to the last five or so years, a lot of the papers that I'm reading are no longer focused on demonstrating that utility or some kind of instrumental improvement, but they simply are just now employing GCGC as a tool to solve a problem. And so that's a huge shift really in our field. Um, I personally feel that there's less of a focus on fundamental studies on GCGC and more of a focus on kind of use-inspired research problems. So some of the papers lately that tended to catch my eye are those that are really bioanalytical in nature, using GCGC to, to tackle some major complex um, bioanalytical, you know, health medicine type problems um, where GCGC is the, the solution to that. Um, I'll talk about a few papers that I've read recently um, that I'd like to highlight. The first paper that, that I think of is a paper by Rannan and et al. in 2020. It's published in the journal Molecules. Um, they published a paper called Comprehensive Two-Dimensional Gas Chromatography Mass Spectrometry Analysis of Exhaled Breath Compounds After Whole Grain Diets. I think studies like this are so interesting, looking at how we can use non-invasive matrices like breath to monitor what our bodies are doing under different circumstances. Diet is something that impacts all of us, the way we feel, how much energy we have, right? We're starting to see a lot of diet hacks out there. It'll be interesting to see, you know, in my opinion, if GCGC can help us answer some of those questions about how food is impacting our daily life. Um, another paper that I recently read was uh, by Markowska et al. in uh, 2020 in the journal Burns. It's called Qualitative Analysis of Surgical Smoke Produced During Burn Operations. And that paper analyzes smoke coming off of a tool that they use. It's an electronic knife that they use to excise necrotic wounds from burn victims. For me, that's a really exciting application of GCGC. I think it may have some serious impact on victim lives down the road. I think it's impressive. So I'm, I'm going to jump in here and say yeah. um, but just uh, one one comment. So for for our listeners, uh, in, in preparing for the conversation here, I, 
I decided it would be a good idea to to take a look at that paper while eating lunch. And it turns out that wasn't a, a good idea. It's not <laughs> the most appealing topic while you're eating lunch. But um, it's really super interesting to look at that those compound tables. I mean, I was really stunned to, to see that benzene was a, a major component of this smoke. I would just have never imagined that. So really fascinating to see the, the profile of things that are, are being discovered there. Yeah, it's really interesting for me because uh, a lot of what I've studied has been, you know, necrotic tissues. It's, it's you know, dead decomposing remains. Uh, we mostly deal with, with pig remains when we do our research studies. Um, but it's interesting always for me to see the overlap between uh, what we look at on the decomposition side of things with how living victims might actually impact from some of that information. And, and that's this paper is one example of that that I thought was quite interesting. Um, I'll also highlight a third paper if we have a moment to. Yeah, that paper is by Schleich et al. in 2019 in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. It's called Exhaled Volatile Organic Compounds Are Able to Discriminate Between Neutrophilic and Eosinophilic Asthma. Um, this is a paper where they uh, use GCGC and, and some other tools too. Um, to look at breath markers to differentiate different types of asthma. That has a lot of implications in how asthma is treated. Um, where I live in the Pacific, asthma is a major challenge and a significant health disparity, especially for children. The thought of uh, you know, being able to develop these tools to help address some of these uh, health disparities for me is really exciting. And I, I think we're gonna see a lot of development in the area of asthma moving forward. Um, so those are some of the, the papers that I think are really impressive and interesting more recently. You know, like I said, I, I really like these papers that are focusing on health and, and medicine. Yeah, so one question I have for you about the last one there is, so my understanding is that uh, with this work, they're able to, I would say, uh, sort of uh, be more precise with the diagnosis, um, talking about different sort of variants or, or phenotypes of asthma. So would it be fair to think about this as a, an example of moving in the direction of personalized medicine? So you don't just have asthma, you have this particular type of asthma, and therefore we're going we're gonna to focus on these kinds of treatments for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of the papers, you know, in the area of breath analysis do definitely have more of that personalized medicine feel to them because you know if we can better understand what cells are doing what tissues are doing by looking at these metabolomic studies then that gives you know a leg up it gives a, an advantage in how to treat it how to monitor it and hopefully how to eradicate certain diseases so i think that'll be really interesting to watch all right great so thanks for your insights on these recent papers kate i'm sure our listeners will appreciate your view on, on this work. And I'll just point out for listeners here that we'll include links to the papers that, that Kate just uh, was referring to in the show notes. So if you're interested in following up on those, you can, uh, you can follow them there. Uh, as we start to wrap things up here, there's one additional topic I'd like to touch on with you. Uh, recently, you interviewed several women working in separation science and published parts of those interviews in, in the LCGC blog. And I'm curious to know if you've received any feedback on this post uh, from the community. And, and then in the years to come, what, what do you think are some of the things uh, that would be most important for getting more women involved in separation science field? 
Yeah, that is uh, a great topic for us to cover today. Um, I've gotten a ton of feedback on that article. It's been really awesome for me. Uh, I want to actually start by just thanking everyone in the community that shared the article. You know, the act of simply just sharing things like this is a small step forward and all of that stuff helps. So thank you so much. Um, you know, frankly, it was, it was difficult for me to write that article. I have a lot to share about my experiences as a woman in science, in academia, and specifically in chemistry as well. And I feel like I'm only really starting to scratch the surface of a lot of those, you know, thoughts and topics. Um, and it's not easy to talk about those things because they are highly personal. Uh, I focus in this article on bringing women in from my network and getting their take on challenges, advice, and, and their thoughts about the field. Um, one of the things you hear a lot is how important it is to build your network, build your tribe, find your people, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, I, I'm so lucky that I have always been surrounded by a number of successful women in my field. But I know that that's not the norm at all. Um, one thing I'm really passionate about is being able to find ways to unite women who are junior chemists uh, or junior academics or graduate students with those who are in more upper level positions. Um, and that is not, not so easy. It's still kind of difficult to find a lot of women in the highest levels of science these days. Um, while you know we do have representation in a lot of sectors, it's not necessarily so common to find you know, women who are full professors, for example, or who are directing a, a company, you know, within the industry. Um, and, and that really needs to start changing. So, you know, for, for those people who are just getting started, sometimes they really just need to be able to send an email or make a phone call and ask someone like, hey, is, is what I'm experiencing normal? Is this thing that's happening okay? You know, are my feelings valid? Um, and, and even as kind of a mid-career academic, I, I send a lot of emails like that and I make a lot of phone calls like that. Um, some of them are more about just general career advice, but other times I seek out help about a lot of interpersonal interactions that I have. I'm, you know, honestly always shocked at how quickly someone will drop their responsibilities to talk with me about something I'm going through. Um, and I know that it's because they get it. They've been there. They've been through it. They want to help. And that means the world to me. So I think we need, you know, to do more connecting people um, with those who have kind of been through some of these experiences so that we have more tools to navigate what we're dealing with in the workplace. Um, I can't, I really can't imagine, you know, traversing this career path without a network of, of women to share it with. Long gone are the days where women were not seen in chemistry programs as students or not seen in teaching positions or research positions or as industry chemists. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a significant amount of bias and hurdles to overcome still. Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do and I, I really want to be part of that conversation. So I think this will not probably be the last time that you see me write on a topic like that. All right, great. And um, like I said, I was I was glad to see it, and and I'm uh, definitely hope we do see you continue to to uh, share more with us about it. So before uh, closing, uh, wrapping up the episode here, I'd like to first give a shout out to the next multidimensional chromatography workshop, which will be held at the end of uh, January. 2023, actually, uh, next calendar year. So Kate, can you give us a quick overview of this meeting you mentioned before, um, sort of it's come full circle for you as a, as a, you know, first attending as a student and now being as a co-chair of the conference. So can you just give us, a, give us a quick overview of what this meeting is about and, and a, a few of the details for folks that are, might not be familiar with it? 
Yes, absolutely. So this is obviously one of my favorite events of the year, um, not only because I'm co-chair of it, because it really was one of the main reasons why I got into the field in the first place. Um, so our next event will be the 14th multidimensional chromatography workshop happening January 30th to February 1st, 2023, and that'll be happening in Liège, Belgium. Um, this will be our first in-person event um, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we've had two years of virtual conferences and we are very, very much looking forward to holding um, this event in person. Um, we also anticipate that we're going to have a live stream option for those who maybe want to watch the event, um, but can't necessarily travel to participate in it. Um, this event has always been about connecting people, about networking, about highlighting exciting things that are happening, but also giving people a venue and an avenue to explore their own research, even if it's not in its total finish stage. So there's lots of opportunity to discuss at the conference, to ask questions, to, um, you know, kind of get some opinions about what you might be doing. I know for me, when I was attending this conference as a grad student, oftentimes I would go into it saying, you know, here's the results I have so far. And, and I'd be really curious if anyone has any thoughts on this topic, because I'm, I'm looking for solutions. I'm looking for, for help on, you know, this particular aspect. So I think it's a great place for, you know, for experts to come and share the research. I think it's great for graduate students to come and um, network and ask questions and advance their own work. And I actually think it's a really great location for those who are looking to get into the field of multidimensional chromatography. I think they'll find that this is a relatively welcoming community. At, at least that was always my experience with it. Um, you know, people are passionate. They want to they want to share their work, their knowledge, and they want to help get you going if that's where you want to go. So, um, yeah, definitely an interesting uh, conference to attend. Again, it's the 14th Multidimensional Chromatography Workshop happening January 30th to February 1st, 2023, in Liège, Belgium. And we can include awesome. the the link to that conference probably. Yeah, we'll put the too. we'll put the link in the show notes for sure. Great. All right, great. So thanks for that. And then um, finally, I, I think uh, what we're gonna do is a tradition at the end of these uh, end of these podcast episodes is, is finish up with a couple of lighter questions, uh, some fun questions. So the first one, I just want to do two now. The first one is, what is the best analytical advice ever given to you? Okay, um, so I was told once uh, when I was a master's student by a collaborator, you know, probably about 10 years ago now, um, someone from Texas A&M University told me, always work with a sense of urgency. And it's something that I think has always stuck with me um that you know the things that you don't work towards with urgency tend to kind of fall towards the end of your to-do list so if something's important to you and you're passionate about it you know work with a sense of urgency get it out there get it published you know talk about it with people those sorts of things yeah i love that that's great um second one is how do you organize your work day i think this is one really interesting thing for let's say um you know, experts in any field, like uh, an expert like yourself, everybody handles things a little bit differently. And I think sometimes it's, you know, when you hear about a way people do things, it, it gives you some ideas about how to approach things. So how do you organize your workday? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think everyone is so different, right? So you have to kind of figure out what works for you and play to your strengths. 
for me, I, most people will tell, even tell you this. I am the absolute definition of what it means to be a morning person. Uh, my alarm is usually set for 4 a.m., 4.15 a.m. or so. And usually I get up and, and do some kind of physical activity in the morning. Uh, this works really well for me because I live in Hawaii and the rest of the world is basically up before I am. Um, so a lot of my like collaborative meetings and, and meetings with people on the mainland via Zoom, those things tend to happen around like 6, 7, 8 a.m. my time, which for some people would be awful, right? They would think, oh, wow, I don't want to get up that early and have a meeting. But for me, it works really well because I get to do those things while I'm fresh and wide awake. So um, after that, I usually try to tackle some like emails, procedural stuff. And then, you know, depending on the time of year, the rest of my day can be pretty different. Um, I teach about four to six classes a semester. So a lot of my week, you know, and the, the way my schedule goes is really taken up by being in the classroom. Um, so then I try to kind of schedule all my calendar time for writing projects and, and really thinking sometimes. Sometimes you need to schedule time, I think, just to sit down and think about something. Um, we, we forget how productive that helps us be. Um, summer for me is totally different. I don't have to teach. So that's when I schedule my entire day if I want to write. And, and usually that's something that I do pretty frequently. Um, so the summer is a lot of fun. But as an academic, I love that I had, there's kind of a, a cycle to things. You know, we have these 15, 16 week semesters that are really intense. And then we have these periods in between where we can kind of take a breath. And so that's something that I think works well for me. But um, yeah, I think you got to find what works for you. All right, great. Thanks for sharing that as well. So with that, I think it's time to wrap things up. Uh, Kate, thanks so much for joining me for the for the podcast today. I really appreciate hearing your perspective on where the field of multidimensional gas chromatography is at, as, as well as some of the other papers you highlighted from the literature and some of the other things we talked about. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciated it.